I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Accra, Ghana. We are on air internationally across the United States, here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we continue our Living Legacy series. We're talking with and hearing from daughters of the diaspora and those born and raised on the continent. They are sharing how they are reimagining success. Society tells us what success looks like and how it should make us feel. We'll be hearing from women who moved nations, left careers, marriages, movements, chose new nations, new notions of success. They will talk about the risk and the reward, the toll on their health, the challenge and the change they chose and choose. They come from the worlds of law and yoga, governance and sexual violence, art and activism. All of that coming up. Our Living Legacy guest this week is Kathleen Addy. A daughter of Ghana, Africa's first independent nation back in 1957, Kathleen is a woman, an activist, a mother, a leader who brings fire and calls for change in the worlds of governance and human rights, civil society's power, citizen leadership and corruption. Currently, her business is the world of citizens' rights and responsibilities. She's the Deputy Commissioner of Ghana's National Commission for Civic Education. This organization was mandated by Ghana's 1992 constitution to engage, educate, and elevate citizens about just that, their rights and responsibilities. And it has 216 offices all across Ghana. Before that, Kathy worked with civil society organizations like the Center for Policy Analysis and the Center for Democratic Development. She's worked across seven different African nations with Afrobarometer. And she joins us right now. Welcome, welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Esther. Thank you so much. Am I not a citizen? Is a citizen not a human being? We're in the middle of global fury about the ways in which human beings, not considered citizens, are being treated. Or the notion of citizen is being recast and rewritten. It is literally contested territory in different parts of the world. From America's images of caged toddlers in the name of immigration policy to the UK where Brexit has ushered in sanctioned othering and waves of violence, where the children of the Windrush generation, those who worked and built the United Kingdom, are being told that their citizenry is being revoked. Both the US and the UK mirror the rise and rise of white nationalism, which decides that citizenship is about one color, one religion, and one way of thinking. For people of color in America, where digital revolutions brings the infringement of citizens' rights into our world, social media connects us to the ways officers of the state abuse citizens in the name of law enforcement. From the West to right here in Ghana, where the annual rain turns homes into coffins and thousands seek annual refuge from flooding and a lack of planning and preparation, which makes me ask, what do we think our citizens have a right to when it comes to the leadership of this nation? Ghana 
is a nation of 10 regions, Greater Accra, Central Region, the Ashanti Region, the Northern Region, Eastern Region, Upper East, Western, Upper West, Volta Region, and Brungahafu. Each region has a capital. So we're in a moment right now where who we are as citizens of nations and of this world is an important question with a lot of discussion. Kathy, citizen for you, given that that's literally your remit, your work and your world right now, what does it mean and what do you want civic education to look like? For me, I'm passionate about citizenship because it is what makes societies, it is what builds nations, and it's not today. All through history is the notion of belonging to being a citizen of a nation, belonging to that group. That has forced all the progress that we've seen. You know, people have to feel the belongingness. It doesn't have to be abstract. This whole idea of nations and states are man-made it's, it's not any natural occurrence. It's people who decide that, okay, we are together, we are a country, and we are making ourselves citizens of this country. And not all of them originated there. And so it does not make any sense to start with. It's particularly outrageous when it comes from places like the U.S. and the U.K. These are the lords of colonialism. The British went out and colonized whole continents whole nations, whole peoples, and changed things that changed the way the world worked for those people. I mean, Ghana is a concept that's 60 years old because, let's face it, the British were here. If they were not here, there will be no Ghana. There might be some other configuration, but it will not be like this. So literally, their activities, their actions have forced us into this space, which then we accept, even though we are different peoples, because we find ourselves at a place where we can now start redividing. You understand? How do you say that somebody who was born and raised in the UK and is now an adult is not a citizen of that country? When did you notice? <laughs> <laughs> when did you notice? You did not notice when they were born? When they were in school? You didn't when notice they, when they were working for you? When they were working and paying taxes. You didn't notice all of that. But all of a sudden, because you have decided to pursue this racist agenda, suddenly... You've noticed them, that they are there. And it's not one or two people. It's a whole generation of people. And don't forget, these are the people that built the country with free labor. You've never paid for for that labor. You've never paid for it. Mm -hmm. For the plantations and the people who work there that provided the resources. For the people who came back to build your railways. You've never properly, I mean, (laughs) remunerated them. And then there are descendants you want to deny citizenship, people who don't know any other country. So where governance and international relations and international code of ethics demanded that you were humane. You know, we went to the Second World War. We saw how evil we are capable of. We did the UN. We set up all these UN rules and regulations and charters to ensure that our humanity takes front row all the time because we know we are capable of evil. We know. We have so much evidence of that. And so to see now a rise in this idea that says that, okay, I'm evil, but it's okay. That's how I am. It's very frightening for me because at the end of the day, it is the most vulnerable, the weak, who gets the, the short end of the stick when it comes to these things. Immigrants striving for a better life are the ones who are paying the, 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 the price for this. The very country they're trying to escape to has a hand in their, in their underdevelopment. So let's bring it right mm-hmm. here to Ghana with that very important background mm-hmm. and backdrop. 
because this notion of citizenship here in Ghana is less contested territory. Mm -hmm. But the rights that it offers you Mm -hmm. and the responsibilities that you have become the thing and the focus for much of the discussion. Mm -hmm. And that is where there is contested issues. Mm -hmm. So Ghana is a deeply hierarchical society. We are what I call an Oga nation. Mm-hmm. So the Oga, which means the, the big men, the those big, guy. big guys and big women. It's called big manism. Big manism. That's one of my words. Can they add his word? Big manism. And that's essentially those with the wealth, the influence and power to have a, just a different experience than the majority of citizens. Mm-hmm. And why that's different here is so many of our institutions are weak enough mm-hmm. that you as a citizen are never meeting even the the basic standard of Mm -hmm. your humanity. So talk about, when you think about civic education, Mm -hmm. what do you want it to do and change and why in Ghana? To be honest, I think that civic education, if done right, can be a fundamental game changer because, as I always say, good citizens don't drop from the skies. Good citizens are made, they are created, they are educated into that goodness. Because again, like I mentioned before, we are all capable of great evil. But we also know from all the experience we've had as human beings that we can train ourselves to be a certain way. And for me, good citizenship comes down to that. It's about making a decision about the kind of citizen you want to have in a society and putting in the investment to build that kind of citizen. There is no great society on earth. I don't know what's about beyond earth. That was not built deliberately. Everything that comes with good citizenship is deliberate. So a sense of responsibility is deliberate. Knowledge of rights and ability to assert those rights is taught. Nobody comes out knowing that I have to demand this or demand that. Many people don't know. Many people in Ghana today do not know many of their rights, for instance. So I always And say, why? Why do we not know our rights? Because there's a lot of different things. In in a, in many ways it's convenience for it's convenient for the powers that be for people not to know their rights. And sometimes it's convenient for the citizens to be ignorant of their responsibility as well. It's it's really a two way street here. And so as far as I'm concerned, civic education if done right can solve a lot of problems because a lot of the problems we have are people-based, whether the people are citizens or their governments or their leaders. It's all people-based. Can you give me an example of one thing that is a problem that could be changed dramatically with the right kind of civic education? Right, several things. So, for instance, we're talking about rains and devastation and who's responsible for what. So, government has been found wanting in the sense that government has been negligent in ensuring that the city is laid out, that the drainage systems are laid out. The city is engineered to ensure that when there is rain, which there is every single year in June, when there's big rains, there are no floods, properties don't get destroyed, people don't die. This is a very basic responsibility that has been neglected. Because if you look at the map of the city, you will see that we have actually sat down to allow the green spaces to be built up. Nobody got punished for issuing permits for people to build in waterways. You understand? So who's culpable here? So I saw a piece of land and decided that, okay, I can take it and build. I go to the authorities. They know that this is, you can't build here. So maybe they'll say you can't build here. Then I pay somebody something and they say, okay, you go build. I'll give you the permit. 
You understand? So for me, all these people need specific education because it's not just about knowing the wrong thing. It's about knowing that you are part of the problem and you can't be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. You understand? If you do the right thing, we will not have this problem. And it's not just if just you. If we all do the right thing, this problem will be reduced dramatically, drastically. So that's one thing. So for instance, the rain scheme. And anytime it rains, you will see it literally. And people see water flowing in the drain. They find all their rubbish and dump it in the water because they're assuming that it will go and pour out into the sea. So the big drains and rivers become sources of refuse disposal. But you and I know it will not work out that way. It's going to get clogged up somewhere. The water will build up behind it and it will flood. But nobody gets punished for all of this. Nobody pays the consequences for all of this, which is negligence on the part of government. So we should all do our part. Citizens have a great responsibility. If we are going to hold governments to account, it helps if we ourselves sit in the, in the position of moral authority and civic authority. In what ways are citizens leaders? Mm-hmm. And do we understand as citizens that we are also leaders? In other words, that we are problem solvers. We have a role to play in the way our nation is run. Mm-hmm. And we have a right to that role. Okay. No, we don't. And part of the reason is because of this august state you're talking about. Because this is a country of patronage. It's a country that thrives on patrons and subjects. You know, mm-hmm. so right from the beginning, we developed a system of, and part of it was colonial legacy, actually, because the colonialists kind of fed and engineered that kind of structure because it worked for them, this whole divide and rule stuff. So if your person is on top, I mean, if you are on top, then the people around you and the people directly, people can directly benefit from you being where you are. So this August state is what has created the problem that we're having right now. That point about the legacy of colonialism Mm -hmm. and the ways in which it has shaped our understanding of citizenship. Mm -hmm. So there's an expectation that we should always be taken care of as citizens, but we have no role in the taking care of in terms of ourselves. So there's this weird mix of Mm -hmm. behaviors, incredibly hardworking, entrepreneurial spirit, get up and go, can-do mentality on the one hand, and on the other hand, the expectation of being taken care of in very specific, basic ways. Mm -hmm. But also what I call the wait and see, or let's wait and see whether it's the political orga or Mm -hmm. the religious orga, or let's wait and see what the orga will do. And the reluctance to demand and expect Mm -hmm. that that demand will be met. How do you think civic education needs to help citizens raise their voice so that they can actually get the kind of service from their political leaders that would shape or certainly begin to change their lives? Mm -hmm. I think part of it will be also getting the state and the institutions to live up to their responsibilities because civic education is not only directed at citizens. It should be directed at everybody because we all have a responsibility. And if you don't take care of your responsibility, it becomes a bottleneck down the road for me taking care of my responsibility. So it's not just about citizens. How do we get our institutions to be strong and independent, to be able to work without fear or without any sort of uneasiness about pointing out wrongdoing no matter who. This can be a civic responsibility. It's about envisioning civic education 
more broadly than we do because it's not just about telling citizens that you have this right, you have this responsibility, but turning the light on to duty bearers as well because they have their own responsibilities. I always tell people that one of the simplest, most basic, but best ways of describing this is a social contract. You have your thing, I have my thing. We all cannot go and represent ourselves. And there's a, that system evolved. It doesn't just drop. It evolved. So you can see human beings trying different ways of governing, governance and building societies. So we evolved to a point where we get to this and we say, look, we will elect representatives to go and sit somewhere and represent our interests, build for us. How are we going to finance that? We will give up some of our own resources so they can give us these benefits. I always tell people, you can do a lot of things by yourself. You can do your own electricity or whatever. You can never build your own road. Every time I speak to young people about social contracts, I say, no matter what you do, you cannot build your own road because you can build a road in front of your house to the junction, but every day you go somewhere different. You cannot build a road every day. So that is the best example of why we need to get people and fund people to do some things for all of us, some common good stuff. So for me, it's important to turn the light, not just on citizens, as far as civic education is concerned, but to turn the light on leadership as well and on government. So that's really important. It leads us into this notion of reimagining governance, mm-hmm. because that's also a global conversation. It's about understanding that essentially all politics are local politics. Mm-hmm. We don't think about it that way here in Ghana necessarily, but all politics are local politics. So in the UK, there are members of parliament who are elected by the citizens to re- represent their local areas. And in the US, we have the midterm elections and mm-hmm. they're about citizens electing or re-electing or changing mm-hmm. their senators or their congressmen. But here in Ghana, we have the MMD. DCEs, that Mm -hmm. is the Metropolitan Municipal and District Chief Executives. Now, they're not elected, although they do actually hold a public purse. They hold public money to execute. You can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes to execute (laughs) projects in their respective areas. Now, in Ghana, we have actually a 30 year system where the president nominates a chief executive from his political party. Mm -hmm. I would say from their political party. It won't always be a he. And so the characteristics are often loyalty to party Mm -hmm. and not to the people. You've been talking specifically about this social contract and that a civics education Mm -hmm. needs to be reimagined more broadly because those who are elected in political office and those who are chosen are also citizens. So they need to be the recipients of civic education. Here in Ghana, Mm -hmm. this issue of local politics being the local solutions to national issues. Why do we seem to struggle so much in recognizing the significance of electing local politicians as opposed to them being chosen by whatever government is in office? It is a complete power play. You have to understand the times and context in which our constitution was written. All things considered, <laughs> to even come up with that constitution was, is, 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 was actually brilliant because we're coming from a situation of dictatorship. If you were not in Ghana at the time, it's difficult to imagine. It wasn't this Ghana where people can say whatever they want. You had to constantly look over your shoulder. There was no accounting for anything, really. And so people are pushing and shoving and finding ways of coming up with a constitution. And they make huge concessions, which is funny because sometimes political leaders do not think that their time will ever end. Mm. So you create the system where... You pretend to cede power and resources and control, but you don't. You know, so you create a local government, but the local people 
to all intents and purposes, do not actually have the final say into who the head of the local government is. And it's convenient for the politicians because when it happens that way, then they still maintain control. It's terrible for the citizens because what happens is that somebody gets plugged there. The person has zero loyalty towards you sometimes. But ultimately, the answer to the appointing power in the case that we have now, the citizens are not the appointing power because we are not electing them. Mm. Somebody is selecting them and placing them, and that is the appointing power. And it's just human nature. People respond <laughs> to where their power emanate from. And so it's a really, really twisted cricket system. I don't know why it's taking us so long, but we really do need to walk away from that. In the beginning, a lot of the politicians said, oh, this might lead to civil unrest because... There were all these strongholds, the political party had their strongholds, and if people had to elect their own leaders in that stronghold, they would elect people who would not cooperate with government, who would not... And I say to them, seriously, are we that unique as a people in the world? <laughs> are we the only people who have that system? If other people can do it, sure as hell we can. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she said hell, ladies and gentlemen. I think hell is a full letter word that we can allow here on the spin. It's almost an insult. To say that if you give Ghanaians the right to elect their local government, they will form these groups that will now destabilize our government. So then let me ask you this, because we've done two things here. You're speaking as though that we're also looking at the reality of a governance Mm -hmm. that is living the legacy of colonialism, Mm -hmm. as opposed to evolving to recognize that in 2018, in this moment... Colonialism and dictatorship. Colonialism and dictatorship. The Mm -hmm. legacy of Mm -hmm. colonialism and dictatorship has not evolved to recognize where we are now and the importance of citizens to be involved in the shaping of what happens in their own local areas. And that also... You have a governance that takes refuge in the ignorance and the powerlessness of citizens. That part of it is not necessarily new. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes the fight to change that Mm -hmm. and to evolve that. We've heard different political parties in Ghana talk about the necessity of electing Mm -hmm. and not selecting our local political representatives. Mm -hmm. And it's always what I call the opposition discussion. Mm -hmm. Everyone has it in opposition when they get Mm -hmm. to power. Mm -hmm. Whoops, we don't need to be talking about that, Mm -hmm. that anymore. And so part of this living legacy is saying that colonialism and dictatorship shapes how we think about leadership. Mm -hmm. We need to reimagine leadership within an African context. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for you? Ghana is a very, like you said, hierarchical, highly class class-based society right. and we have to that's what we need to break right and that but, in that sense it reflects mm-hmm. of, of course the british colonizers because mm-hmm. british Absolutely. is also a deeply Absolutely. class-based society class, yeah. i have a problem with people saying the african way because most of the time when people say that it doesn't end up well for the people who are being told that this is the african way <laughs> so <laughs> i mean the context not the way yeah so 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 for me it's important to understand There is absolutely nothing wrong with picking systems that are working elsewhere. We are not that different from anyone else. Our experiences might be different, but essentially we are people. And as to the extent that we are people and it's working somewhere, it can work here. I I, I strongly believe that a lot of African leaders have used this African thing, the African way, the African context, to actually deny citizens things that they are supposed to give to them. If you elect political leaders and they want to sit as chiefs, they want to run as Mm. chiefs, they want to lead as chiefs, which is a completely different kind of leadership, you know, because 
in a chieftaincy system, there are checks and balances. But if you lift the good part of that, which is having your way all the time, and put it in, 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 in the context of a democracy, for instance, then you can see a situation where you're talking about two things, but you're pretending it's one thing. Mm-hmm. You understand? You're talking about two different things because the African system that you are attempting to project or promote it's not really what it is. Mm. In that system, there are checks and balances as well. It's not a perfect system, but there are checks and balances. You lift the let me be God part of that and you dump it in another system where you are not achieved for everybody because we all don't come from your, your village. <laughs> you know, yet you expect us to give you the same reverence, to deify you in the same way. And you create a system that facilitates that. Mm. You know, you create a system that facilitates that by pushing nepotism, by pushing patronage, by creating a system where who you know is how you get ahead. And actually making examples through that system to say that, you see, because they knew this person, they've, they've succeeded, they've gone this way, they've gone, they've got a good school, they knew this, they knew that. By feeding that system, you, you perpetrate that idea. And that's why I don't like the idea of saying that there's a certain way of, for, for some kind of people to handle Powerful. something. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. Into that challenge comes the notion of gender mm-hmm. and the ways in which there's a constant cycle and series of discussions about the lack of women in political leadership, mm-hmm. given that in Ghana we are 52% of the mm-hmm. population. When we're thinking about citizenry and representation, then that obviously needs to reflect how you live and where you live. So Ghana, like a lot of Africa, is a high population of young people and it's a majority population of women. And yet neither of those two things necessarily manifest in our governance systems. Can you talk a bit about um, shifting this ground so there is a better balance in terms of women and the ongoing challenges that women face, which for, for, for me, it's so interesting that the conversation around governance is so often about nepotism mm-hmm. until you introduce women and then it becomes about competence. Absolutely. Which is such a hypocrisy, quite frankly. Absolutely. But your, <laughs> your, your take. <laughs> I mean, completely. I mean, right. and you hit that nail on the head so hard it's not even funny. Where are the women? Oh, well, we are looking for the competent women. But you have these men. And I mean, competence is the last word that will describe any of them. But when it comes to women, suddenly we remember our standards. We remember the rules. Right. We remember that we are looking to move our society forward. So we need a specific type of woman. Right. But if it's going to be a man, any man will do. And I mean it like literally. Any man at all will do. And it continues. We continue to see it back and forth, government in government. We continue to see it. For women, it's always a, diff- a completely different set of rules. Right. And we must highlight that, you know, and we must push that. One of the things I find troubling is the idea of women's wing of political parties. And 
of course, when we by the time we got to this fourth republic, our only sort of reference of a successful model was a CPP model at independence. And the CPP model at independence had this women's wing. And that women's wing was a very powerful tool that the CPP used to amass and consolidate power, just like the youth wing. It's a certain model that we find with the ANC in South Africa, you know, it's a, and it belongs to a certain era. And, and something needed to be done in that way because it responded to the needs of that era. Do we need women's wings of political parties today? Or do we mainstream and ensure that women I, I don't like this othering of women and create, let's create the space for them. Because what that, when that happens, you are completely eliminated from the mainstream or you are represented in the mainstream with tokens, you know. So for me, I keep telling people, look, much as we may dislike the political parties, they are not going away anytime soon. They are not going to disappear. I don't know when we are going to decide that we don't want a democracy anymore. I tell people, this year is 25 years of, our, of the 1992 constitution. I tell people, this is the most tw- stable 25 years that we've had since 1957. We haven't had a 25-year stretch where there was no military coup, where there was no upheavals, you know, of any major, there's no, all kinds of illegal removal of government and all of this. This is the longest stretch. So no matter what the problems and flaws we have, obviously this is the thing that works for us. And what we need to do is to ask ourselves, what are the changes we can make in the political parties? Because they drive the system. There's no running away from it. The two major ones for the past 25 years, we've been trying to look for a third force. Hopefully it's coming up somewhere. But so far, this is it. I keep telling people it's not good enough to stay out of the system. Part of your civic responsibility is to take up leadership if you have the skills. We have in this country people shun and look down on people who work as political activists, purely party activists. You know, there's a way we look at them, there's a way we treat them, there was a way we there's almost an inbuilt it's a contempt, it seems like. Contempt, that's the word. And it's it's almost like, oh, these people, I mean, they're just a bunch of funny people, you know, they are foot soldiers of a political party. No. You understand? If you feel that superior Go and work. Go and build a party. You understand? And I tell people that all the time. You, there's no running away from it. And we are not going to build utopia with any political party, old or new. Any new party that comes and drops in the system will face the challenges that these parties face and will come up with probably the same solutions. What will change anything is the human resource that goes to run the parties. So don't sit out. Mm. And it's part of your civic responsibility to get involved. Look, it's not enough to sit out and criticize government. That has been done for how long? And where has that gotten us? What big changes have come as a result of that? Obviously, big changes are made in government. So I always encourage people who are complaining, choose a side. Any side will do. Pick a side, go in there, try and make it right. All the things that you see, because the political party that wins an election will run the government. There's no running away from that. That's the reality. There's no running away from. No political group will win an election and say, oh, 
we don't have capacity, so we're calling this other group of people to come and run a government. It will not happen. Mm. So why don't you be a part? If you feel that there's something that needs fixing in our political system, be an agent of change to try and fix it. It's powerful. I mean, I think that all nations Mm -hmm. to move forward, Mm -hmm. the progress of nations has always been the result of multiple players. Mm -hmm. The activist plays a role, governance Mm -hmm. plays a role, civil society plays a role, different groups play a role. And so I don't know that every activist needs to be within government, but I Mm -hmm. do think and I appreciate the point that to step up, Mm -hmm. to stand up, Mm -hmm. is the only way to make change. You certainly can't do it sitting down or sitting out. the government did not drop from mass. No, it it emerges from the people. It emerges from the people. So if you feel so strongly about it, be part of that emergence. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributor this week is Kathleen Addy, Deputy Commissioner of the National Commission for Civic Education in Ghana. This is our Living Legacy series. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in the BBC studios here in Laboni in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, New York, Georgia, Iowa, and Massachusetts. We are on air in Ghana and in London on ABN Radio UK. And we're a podcast. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. One hour, global black women. We keep it fly. We honor the smart because smart is sexy. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we are citizens of this world. And that is the highest status. 
and it deserves to be respected by us all. Better citizens make for stronger worlds. Everybody got choices. Obian in your person, you stand for your own. Say me canna won't feel ya, but more than so we need you won't so I'm more say yes. Everybody got choices. This will be an in your person, you stand for your own. Say me canna won't feel ya, but more than so we need you won't so I'm more than say yes. Now what's the meaning of the line? Tell me. Well, it's like dreaming of your goals, ambitions. I'm feeling free. I'm on this mission to achieve. What's in your mind? This is what you believe you should gain. Satisfaction become a shining example. A test as a sample of a new race. It has ample supply, positivity. You mean flow? Well, like electricity. So you see a clear way with no ambiguity. Don't you know it?
philosophy Possibly speak tongue Be drummed at the city young street Baptist Rap this and fine linen From the beginning My practice extending across the atlas I begat this Flipping in together on the dirty mattress You can't match this Rapper slash actress More powerful than two Cleopatra's Bomb graffiti on the tomb of Nefertiti MCs ain't ready to take it to the Serengeti My rhymes is heavy like the mind of Sister Betty El Boogie spars with stars and constellations Then came down for a little conversation Adjacent to the king, fear no human being Roll with cherubims to Nassau Coliseum Now hear this mixture where hip-hop meets scripture Develop a negative into a positive picture corruption now. Here in Ghana and across much of Africa, it is the biggest cancer to a nation's progress. Now, the word is usually applied to mean the ways in which, say, bribes are paid to get action from officials. In other spaces, arguably, it's called lobbying. That's what they call it in states, (laughs) but it's still a misuse of public money and power. power. It's dysfunctional public institutions. The list goes on and on. But Kathy Addy is telling us that here in Ghana, we should also think about sexual violence as a form of corruption. Kathy Addy, sexual violence as corruption. Just break that all the way down for us. What do you mean? Absolutely. And it's not limited to Ghana. Wherever there's sexual violence, it's, it's corruption. And it's for these reasons. Because sexual violence is essentially, first and foremost, about power before anything else. Before sexual gratification, it's about power and abuse of that power. It's about taking what's not yours by force or by cunning. It's about denying rights of victims to the system that will bring them justice. So for me, these are the basic underpinnings of corruption. When you deny a right of a victim, it's like denying citizens the right to their resources. For me, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So when you have a a culture or a system where there are no avenues for justice quick enough to be meaningful for a victim, then you are denying them justice. And it's as bad and as wicked and as evil and as unjust as denying people access to their resources. Because a woman's body is is hers. It's her resource to do with as she pleases. Or a man's body is his as well. I think that that is something that men don't let us forget. They decide what to do with their bodies. Mm -hmm. The main victims, but not the exclusive victims of sexual violence, are women. And part of it comes from a certain idea that says that a woman's body is public property. And other people, (laughs) apart from the woman, can make decisions as to what that body should be used for, which is ridiculous. Sexual violence is about power. Corruption is about power. 
It's about having power and abusing it. It's about having the power to make a difference by doing the job that you were asked to do in ensuring that the city is what? Is flood proof. You understand? Abusing that power means giving people permits to build in, in, in waterways. Abusing that power means not enforcing the rules that you are supposed to enforce. Abusing that power means not ensuring that those who breach the law and cause sanitation breaches all over the place are made to f- face the full rigors and the full impact of what they've done. You're in a position to do that and you don't. Why? Because you're taking these little, little monies from us. It's abuse of power. It's the same thing in sexual violence. You understand? You are a teacher in a po- you, are, you are supposed to be looking after a child. These children have been put in your care by parents. You are a caregiver. You are a father. You are an uncle. Children are supposed to be taken care of. They are brought and put in your care. And you abuse the power you have over them by taking what is theirs that has not belonged to you. So for me, it's very clear that sexual violence is a very serious form of corruption. In Ghana, we've never heard sexual violence contextualized specifically in that way. And I want to actually connect it to education because in Africa, actually, actually in, in Kenya, there was a major case of a school, the Moy Girls mm-hmm. High School, where it was actually reported initially as a break-in and then three girls were raped. It subsequently became an issue of the teachers being accused. There was a de- accusations mm-hmm. of the dereliction of duty, mm-hmm. the failure of the head teacher to respond to the crisis when they were alerted. And now the entire school has been closed down. The entire board has been sacked. Mm-hmm. Teachers have been fired and mass teachers are being required to do DNA. DNA tests as multiple protests mm-hmm. by parents, by alumni mm-hmm. who are really sounding the alarm mm-hmm. that this is an issue that has been happening in this school. Mm-hmm. When we bring it here to Ghana, there's an organization here in Ghana called the Coalition Against Sexual Abuse. Mm-hmm. I am part of it. You're also part of it. And right now there's a campaign called Stop Sex Abuse in Schools that has been ongoing. Mm-hmm. And that is specifically about shining a light on the teachers, the head teachers, the heads of department who are sexually abusing students mm-hmm. and doing so without any real consequence mm-hmm. or sanction mm-hmm. to change that behavior. When you link this notion of sexual violence being mm-hmm. a serious form of corruption to this issue of education, what do you want us to understand about the connection between the two and why education and therefore economic progress Mm -hmm. is actually being impacted when you think about sexual violence in education being a form of corruption. Sexual violence being an avenue of denying economic empowerment, I think is fairly straightforward. Because when people are violated and they are traumatized, they do not become the best version of themselves. The trauma of that experience continues to haunt them. And especially in this place, we do not have the safety nets. We don't have the fallback positions. We don't have the interventions, not at the national level and certainly not at any level, to ensure that these people, at least when they get this traumatized, have the opportunity through therapy, through counseling, through justice, to be able to get to a point where they say that, well, this happened, but I can put it behind me and try and move forward and make something of myself. Most of the time, their reactions, their choices, their, where they find themselves, the progress they make 
it's all seriously influenced by the trauma that they felt. And so it's helping them to make poor decisions. It's pushing them to get into Stockholm Syndrome. It's pushing them to normalize the abuse that they have been subjected to. And so because it's dysfunctional, the individual does not become the best version of themselves. And that has an impact on your economic empowerment because if you are not the best version of yourself, you cannot work to feed yourself. It's very straightforward. So for me, th- that is it. And, and, and so that, that infringement, that violation is a form of corruption because you are denying people the opportunity that they could have taken to be self-sufficient, for instance. So for me, that's it. So that's really powerful and it makes me think about whether or not if sexual violence were actually formally categorized as a serious form of corruption, should that then be considered when sanctions or consequences are being imposed on the perpetrators who are found to be guilty? And what kinds of sanctions would you like to see? Absolutely, except that in this country, I don't see the sanctions for corruption. So I don't know if that will help. (laughs) That's really true, actually. You know? Yes. One of our biggest problems is that there are no sanctions for corruption in this country. If there are, we don't see them. I mean... There are rewards, unfortunately. If you list all the corruption scandals that have happened over the past 10 years, for instance, who got even a slap on the wrist for what? Who got jailed for what? How many people have been made to pay back whatever they stole? It's like people get away with it. And one of the biggest problems is that you entrench corruption when you give the signal that it's okay, it's accepted, and you can get away with it. And it's the same for the sexual violence business. It's so rampant in the schools because we have created a system of covering things up as opposed to shining light on these kinds of things. I mean, families are allowing things to be settled out of court because they think it's okay to take some money and just forget about everything else. Not considering the victim, the trauma, and the long-term implications for the life of that person because of the, the trauma that they've had to, to, to go through. So then let's also explore that in the context of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So that if sexual violence is a serious form of corruption that denies those who are victimized mm-hmm. from potentially becoming the very best of themselves. Mm-hmm. And we want to also acknowledge that there are people who have been victims who go on to do amazing things. That's not this point. So what does that then mean for those who are perpetrators and can continue to become perpetrators uninterrupted because there is not the kind of sanction or consequence or recognition that they are not just violating, mm-hmm. that they're violating an individual's body. And then beyond that, they're actually they impacting. The, you know, it's not just violating the person today. You've actually traumatized the person and that becomes a threat to their future prospects in very simple terms. You know, and so as long as we have a system where that's behavior of the perpetrator continues to be entrenched and unpunished, that behavior will be expanded. That space will attract more and more people who are predisposed to abusing others because it provides a safe space for that sort of thing to happen. If we don't nip it in the bud and it's gone way beyond bad at this stage, if we don't care it, if we don't send a forceful signal out there by making sure that the full perpetrators face the full consequences of their actions. We are only saying to people who might be so predisposed that going to become a teacher in a primary school provides limitless opportunities for you to abuse people and get away with it. 
Sexual violence is a serious form of corruption. It absolutely. Kathleen Addy reimagining a word that has been applied specifically to public service and politicians and breaking it down for us here in Ghana so that it is applied also to sexual violence. Don't cut me off when I'm gone.
Can you imagine that that is actually the hour? Thank you to Kathleen Addy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and distributor Loretta Rucker and the AAPRC. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We're at The Spin One. This is Living Legacy, a series of discussions on The Spin, your hour of global talk where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther
This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.